Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. You know, the Bible goes out of its way to let us know that Jesus was human. We, of course, are told he was born of woman. We are told he was a bit of a handful for his parents when he was a youth. We are told he got angry. We are told he hungered, he thirsted, he cried, and he loved. All very human traits. The Bible, God, the Holy Spirit want you to know that Jesus was very human. Today I want to talk about the fact that he was also tempted, just like you and I. Let's start, start off by reading the story straight out of Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it, that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me, and to, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Now, one thing I want you to take away from this is that it's a personal story. It's a story of a personal experience. And unlike most of the other gospel experiences, there was no one with Jesus as these events unfolded. And yet, we have a record of it. How can we have a record of it if no one was there with Jesus? 
Well, we have a record of this in the Gospels because Jesus gave it to us. No one was with him at the time. Therefore, we have to come to the conclusion that Jesus himself is the source of the details, and he alone is the reason we have the story. You know, the gospel writer John tells us, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. John says that not everything that happened is in this book. And actually, not everything that happened to Jesus is in this book. Therefore, we can come to... You have to read God's Word with a little bit of common sense from time to time. There's nothing wrong with that. God is not afraid of your intellect. He does not think you're going to come up with something he didn't think before you. There's nothing wrong with reading this quote critically. I encourage you to. I do it all the time. I'm not saying read it doubtfully. I'm saying read it critically. In other words, try to figure out what it's saying. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, and two or three letters, and Revelation, said in the gospel that not everything that happened in the life of Jesus was written down. Therefore, we can come to the conclusion, because we're reading it critically, that God discriminated. He purposely discriminated in that I mean he decided some things would be included and others not included. Now, that wasn't a random thing. That wasn't a random choice. We can confidently come to the conclusion that there's nothing in this book that's there by mistake, as well as coming to the conclusion that anything that was excluded is completely necessary for our knowledge of salvation and how to spread the gospel. Nothing is there that shouldn't be, and nothing is not there that should. That's why we can be certain, listen to me, that the story of the temptation in the wilderness was put in the record of the life of Jesus by him personally for a mighty purpose. And we can be certain that Jesus himself endorses this purpose, because only he himself is responsible for it being there. No third party, no interpreting witness was there. It was Jesus and Satan. And trust me, Satan didn't want this in the Bible. Jesus did, and it's there for a reason. Jesus must have felt that we could learn. That's the purpose of the Bible is so that we can learn. He must have felt like we can learn something from it. Or trust me, he would have never had it put in the gospel. Our mission today is to dig into the story and find at least some of the truth that Jesus insisted be shared with this church. Let's just go over a few of the lessons we should glean from this. 
in more than a few of our lessons, we've told you about that crafty old so-and-so, the devil. One of the things that should be clear to you is that Satan is very interested in seeing you fail. And I'm not talking about failure as the world defines it. He doesn't care, for instance, if you're homeless. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're a millionaire. He doesn't care if you're neglected, nor does he care if you're the most famous actor or accomplished musician in the world. That's not a part of his interest base, if you will. He just doesn't want you to succeed in the next life. He doesn't want you to be a success in the eyes of God. You remember our lesson on the parable of a sower. In that story from the Gospels, Jesus said that when the sower scattered seed, some of it fell on a spot that did not yield fruit, Matthew 13, 4. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. The picture that Jesus was trying to show us was that the devil, typified by the fowls, who devoured the seed. Listen to me. The devil has the power to remove from you any hope of salvation. When the sown word of God doesn't take root in the hardened heart of the listener, and you can harden your own heart. The wayside was hardened because the world traveled over it. The wayside is the road, and it it was hardened because of the ruts of the wagons and the coaches had traveled over it so many times and beaten it down so hard and tough that it could not be penetrated. It's a picture of you and I when we expose ourselves to the way the world is. You have to be very careful about being exposed to the world. Because if you allow that to happen, it hardens your heart. And if your heart is too hardened, then the seed that was scattered by the sower, which is the word, can't penetrate. And that's very dangerous. Because what can happen? The fowls can come and devour it. The devil is right there to snatch, to take away the nourishing, life-giving word of God. That's why the Bible tells you to be separate. Once you've given your life to Christ, there are some things you can't do anymore. Because that's where the world hangs out. And I'm not just talking about the bars. I'm not just talking about the strip clubs or the movie theaters. I'm talking, and I think you know what I'm talking about. When God is ridiculed, when God is minimalized, when God is treated like some sort of silly old fool, you need to stay away from that mindset. You can't allow yourself to be influenced by that. You can't go around telling people that the Bible 
is just fairy tales. You can't go around hanging around people who minimize what the Word of God is trying to say to you, because eventually you'll be hardened to it. And when that happens, the devil will swoop in and take away your last chance. The lesson is, don't squander your opportunities. Don't sleep in on Sundays. Don't stay out late on Saturdays. Even if it's an all-night prayer service, get enough rest so that when Sunday morning comes, you're ready. When the Word is being sown to you, be ready. Listen, the devil is always ready to destroy your chance at becoming a useful, productive child of God. You must understand, he doesn't care whether you become attached to him. He doesn't care. He couldn't care less if you gave him more than two thoughts. All he wants is to prevent you from from producing fruit for the kingdom of God. Well, that parable, that same parable teaches us that in some instances, even when the word is received with joy, persecution, tribulation, and temptation will also come. Persecution, tribulation, and temptation no doubt also come from the devil, but it comes from the world as well. The world loves to tell you what sorry state it's in. It tries to rob you of your hope. It tries to point out to you how often mankind has failed. All of that being true. But it neglects to tell you that there is hope still. Well, all of this that I'm sharing with you is to make one thing clear. The devil hates Jesus, and hates the mission of Jesus. The devil will do whatever he can to stop the kingdom of heaven from taking a foothold here, here in his own dominion. And you know it's his own dominion, right? Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. Paul calls him the god of this world, meaning little little g. This world, as you've been taught, was originally meant to be the dominion of Adam and his descendants. But we know how that turned out. Adam squandered the opportunity. And what happened? Satan was back of it. He just stood back and waited for the opportunity to snatch this world away, and that's exactly what he did. And now Satan is in charge, if you will. Under God's leadership, of course. It's mysterious, not something we're going to get into. But this world is Satan's dominion, prince of the power of the air. God, however, has never given up getting the world back to the way he intended it to be. From the moment of Adam's sin, God has been working out the rescue plan. Now, there's no doubt about it. Listen to me. God will eventually win. This is a well-known, well-established fact. Even Satan knows it. And yet, inexplicably, he's never stopped fighting God. 
Now, John, I've, I've, I've had enough. You've talked about Satan for about 10 minutes. It's just a lie, isn't it? I mean, isn't it just fairy tales? There's no such thing as the devil. The devil's just some made-up character to scare little kids into behaving. People believe that. People believe there's no such thing as the devil. Yes, they'll say Jesus is real and God is real and Mary is real, but the devil mm, couldn't be. It's common. It's common today in the world. It's common today in the church. As the church world becomes more and more impressed with its own intelligence, it's even come up with the philosophy that there's no real person of the devil. There's just this symbol of the sum, a total of all human sin or something. That's what the church is trying to tell you. Sure, the, the devil is in the Bible, but it's not really a person. It's sort of an allegory. It's a metaphor. People in and out of the church world don't believe in the devil. And you know what? Satan is just fine with that. Thank you very much. He's never looked for attention. Quite the opposite. Because his most formidable weapon against you is your refusal to acknowledge he exists. The best thief is the one you never knew was there. I one time had my wallet stolen from a fitness center in New York City. I didn't even realize it was gone until I got a call from the credit card company asking me if I, I had just purchased three televisions at Target or something. And I said, of course not. That's my corporate card. Why would I do that? The person on the other line said, well, then look, I think someone has stolen your credit card. I looked at my wallet. Every single dollar bill was still there. I couldn't figure that out. It didn't seem right. I thought maybe my wallet had, my credit card had fallen out. I reported it to the police, of course. And I, as I was speaking to the, the, the most giant police officer I had ever seen, sitting across from me. I said, I don't understand it. I mean, the guy didn't steal any money from me. He says, very common, he told me. You see, you're not looking for your credit cards. You're looking for cash in your wallet. You'll notice when cash is gone. You won't notice when your credit cards are gone. As a matter of fact, the, the thief unlocked my lock somehow, took my wallet, took my credit card, put the wallet back where it was, and locked the locker back up all to give him the time necessary to try to purchase these items. He did not want me to know that he had stolen from me. The devil is not going to announce his presence when he comes into your life. He's not going to come looking all smelly and scary with horns. That's just going to frighten you. And you're going to run. You're going to run as far as you can. I've always said to you, I'm convinced that the serpent in the garden was the most beautiful creature there. Eve never flinched. Satan's too smart for that. 
He's not going to let you know he's there. He doesn't want you to know that he's real. You see, when we get so overconfident in our evolved state, when we are so certain that we're too smart to believe in such things as the devil, he's halfway to destroying you. Well, I can tell you one thing for sure. There is one person I know who believes in the devil, and that's Jesus. He knows who Satan is, and he knows where he came from. Because one time he said that he had beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Do you think he was being allegorical when he said that? Do you think that Jesus is too ignorant to know better? You tell him that. Jesus has made it his mission to battle the devil's influence and impact in this world because the result of the devil's presence in human lives is sin. Sin did not enter into the human family until Satan tempted Eve. And then sin separated man and God's been fighting him ever since. When Jesus came to earth, he came to go to war with the devil and to destroy sin. But Jesus also battled the actual person of the devil. And one of those battles occurred out there in the wilderness of our story. Now, one of the most shocking characteristics of the devil and the purpose of this first section is that he seems to exhibit no restraint in trying to destroy the mission of Jesus. Now, get one thing straight. Get one thing straight. The devil is keenly aware of who Jesus is. The Bible makes it very clear that the spirit world is full of hierarchy. There are hierarchy of angels and there are hierarchy of demons who used to be angels. Most of the time, that's what principalities and powers means. Rulers of the darkness of this world. You've heard that. There is a hierarchy. When you're being assailed by evil, you can be fairly certain that it's not Satan himself coming to attack you. He's going to send some underling to do it. Nobody's going to send Colin Powell to take care of some little tiny upright. You can, I don't, I don't know the modern generals, but I can, I remember Colin Powell and how much I loved him as a commander. You're not going to send Colin Powell personally to go take care of some little rebellion in some small part of the world. Colin Powell is going to send some less important squad to take care of business there. Same thing in the spirit world. When the situation called for Michael to come, Michael came. When the situation called for Gabriel to come, Gabriel came. 
more than likely Michael and Gabriel aren't around attending to you. There are underling angels attending to you. And yes, angels exist too, and they're serving you right now. I used to love the way Leslie Hale would say where you, you know, if you could pull back the curtain of time, you would see all around you all of these angels. Well, how amazing that must be. They're all around us. Well, more than likely, Michael and Gabriel are not there attending to your needs. It is some sort of hierarchy. Martin Luther used to say regularly, and, and people thought he was insane, that Satan himself would show up and, and, and attempt to aggravate him all the time. And you know, I believe it. Look what Martin Luther did. Look at the impact of Martin Luther. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We must never forget that. Martin Luther was quite human and quite flawed. Nonetheless, Satan himself would show up to harass Martin Luther. I believe that. This called for the big guns. When Jesus was sent into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, we'll cover that in a second, Satan was not going to send some second lieutenant. No offense to you second lieutenants out there. Satan was going to do the job himself. Because the devil is keenly aware of who Jesus is. Satan knows that Jesus is the speaking agent that even brought him into existence. Yes, into existence. Yes, even the devil was created, and he was created by Jesus. Jesus was the speaking agent of creation. Jesus created the devil, and yet the devil having full knowledge of who he was dealing with, set out to confront Jesus, and he did it without the slightest hint of respect. The point of this first section of our lesson is to show you that the devil is on a single-minded mission to battle and destroy the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he's going to do so without restraint. The boldness, the temerity, the audacity of the devil makes him a very dangerous foe. Now, I'm driving this point home to prepare you. I've said this to you before. Listen to me. Once you start taking a step for Christ, all hell is going to descend upon you. You may think, well, who am I? What do I, I don't amount to a hill of beans. Yes, you sure do. The moment you make the decision to make a difference in your own life, because that's the way, way it starts out. You, it starts out you wanting to make a difference in your own life, and eventually it progresses to you wanting to make a difference in other lives. It's, it's a progress thing. That's the way it works out. But right now, 
if you're at the stage where you just want to be better. You just, you know Christ is right and you want to accept him as your savior. The moment you do that, you become expendable to Satan and he's going to do something about it. That moment in your life will be when all hell will descend upon you. This particular battle in the wilderness between Jesus and Satan occurred at the very moment the ministry of Jesus began. Prior to that, he was, he was at best a carpenter's son. He may have been a carpenter. I don't find any proof of that in Scripture. I think he was a teacher. But up to that point, He was just a teacher. From the moment he entered the wilderness after being baptized, he became a preacher. And his real mission began. His real ministry began. Are you saying that Satan didn't bother with him before? Don't know. It doesn't tell us. Probably not Satan himself. He probably sent an underling. But when Jesus persisted in going on this path toward the cross, right up to the point that he was baptized, Satan said, that's it, I've got to take care of this myself. The moment you step out, for the kingdom of God, even if it's just to accept Christ to improve your own eternity, you're going to be attacked. If the devil had no reservations about going after Jesus, he'll certainly come after you. Now, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to prepare you. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Therefore, you ought to know you better get Jesus in you because he is greater. He is the one that is in us greater than he that is without, that is in the world. Jesus is your only protection. Once your heart starts to beat for Christ, you're going to start to face challenges and trials you never thought would happen to you. Think about it. You that have been saved for a little while. Think about it. If you've persisted in your sanctification, think about it. What's happened to you? You shake your head sometimes like, where did this come from? I'll tell you where it came from. Satan. When God's word stops being just some old dusty fairy tale book and starts becoming your light and life, the devil will do everything in his power to stop you. But the good news is, and I assume we could probably use some good news right now. The good news is that the power of the devil is limited. He is not omnipotent, which means all-powerful. Only God is all-powerful. Only he is omnipotent. But limited though the devil's power may be, you are still no match for him. Don't take him on alone. Follow Paul's advice. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Ephesians 6.11 How? One of the most important points 
that you must see in the story of the temptation in the wilderness is that the Word of God is front and center. The the most important takeaway from the story of the temptation in the wilderness is that God's Word ruled supreme. Everything hinged and pivoted on the Word of God in this story. And I want you to understand, the devil knows how important Scripture is because he used it as a weapon. That's just amazing to me. The devil used the Word of God to try and destroy the Son of God, who also happens to be the very subject of the Word of God. That is the sign of a crafty, desperate, unbound enemy, and again, I say, very dangerous. And then, what does Jesus do when he's attacked with the Word of God? He defends himself with the Word of God. He fights fire with fire. Jesus took the Word of God and repelled the attacks of the devil who was using the Word of God. If you get nothing else out of this lesson, get this. The Word of God is front and center because the Word of God is Christ. It speaks of Christ. It is the story of Christ. The devil knows that, and he tries to weaken it. Why do you think you think the Scripture is unevolved? Somebody once told me that. The problem with Scripture is it's not evolved. Where do you think that's coming from? Satan is trying to make the Word of God sound ludicrous to you. You're trying to compare the Word of God to the way the world is, the way the world sees things, and you see there's a disparity between the two. Why do you think you see the disparity? First of all, it exists. It's real. There's a disparity between what the Word of God says and what the world says. And Satan wants you to think the world is right and the Word of God is wrong. And he'll use everything possible. He'll say it's racist. He'll say it's sexist. He'll say it's fable. It's violent. It's hateful. It's exclusionary. It's conservative. He is presenting you a version of the Word of God that's distasteful to you. You should realize how valuable Scripture really is. The devil knows. He tried to use it against Jesus. Jesus knows because he tried to use it against the devil and won. The Word is our link to our eternity. In my notes, I have the Word is our link to life. I think that's incomplete. I wrote it, 
and I say it's incomplete. The Word is our link to eternity. It's our punch through time. That's why it's so important for you to get to know it. No wonder the Word itself tells us faith cometh by hearing and hearing of the Word of God. Hang on, because this takes a bit of focus. Back to the story. Satan brings Jesus to, to Jerusalem, and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. Don't worry about the details. Everyone, when you read this story, people go, what is the pinnacle? What does that mean? There is no such a... Don't worry about the details. Satan brings Jesus to Jerusalem and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. Take it for what it says. He says to Jesus that if you're the Son of God, throw yourself off here because surely God will keep his word. When he's, See, he's using God's word against Jesus. He's twisting it. Surely God will keep his word when he, when he said he will give his angels charge over you and keep you and he'll hold you up with his hands. It was Psalm 91 he was trying to twist. Verse 11, for he shall give his angels charge over thee. This is Psalm 91, verse 11. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Satan was quoting scripture. That surprises some people because in the movies, whenever Satan is personified, we see that he burns up or cowers at the sight of a Bible or a cross. That's not the case. This is a very important lesson. You have to be aware that there are people who profess to be Christians or God-loving or whatever they'll call themselves who know a few or even quite a few verses of Scripture. But that doesn't mean they're a Christian. Being a Christian means so much more. We're following Christ. Being Christian means living your life according to Scripture, not quoting Scripture. I mean, there are lots of people who can expertly recite passage after passage. I'm not one of those. I've all often told you I wish I was better at memorizing Scripture. But there are people who can do that. But they put no more faith in it than they do the Sunday times. In fact, many of the enemies of God will, as we've seen, try and twist Scripture and attempt to destroy Christianity, just like Satan tried to do back there in the desert. I remember reading an article where someone was actually trying to use parts of the gospel to lay, to lay a factual foundation for the notion that Jesus survived his crucifixion, which of course is lunacy. The author of the article that I read actually properly quoted the verses in English, but then placed a false interpretation on some key Greek words to make his point, counting on your ignorance. Figuring you would be too ignorant to figure that out. That you would be too lazy 
to spend five minutes of research to find out what was postulated was totally false. God's word will be used against you. Someone is going to tell you that God hates women. That God is a sexist. And they'll say, well, Paul said for uh, the women in church to be quiet, to be silent. That proves that God is a sexist. Let me tell you. There are so many heroes of the Bible that are women. Ruth. Mary. Both Marys. On and on it goes. The woman who touched the hem of his garment. What great faith she had. Side trip. Someone is going to try to use, as an instrument of the devil, someone is going to try to use God's word against you. They're going to assume you're too stupid to figure it out. Which is another reason why you must, with diligence and discipline, study God's word. As much time as you put into watching, into binge watching those Netflix series, put half the time, put half the time into studying God's word. Imagine what you could learn. Imagine the protection that you're affording yourself and those you love. As your knowledge of his word grows, your vulnerability to the attacks of your faith, we become less and less. You'll become less and less vulnerable. I mean, that's how Jesus fended off the temptations of the devil. Use scripture. When Satan quoted Psalm 91, Jesus knew that his application of the verse was wrong, purposely wrong. He knew it because he knew scripture. Jesus' response to being attacked with the weapon of the misuse of Scripture was to counter-attack with the right use of Scripture. Jesus, quoting Deuteronomy, tells Satan, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Satan took a verse of Scripture, stripped it of its context, and tried to use it against Jesus. He tried to manipulate the truth, of what was actually said in Psalm 91. It's done to us time and again in the church world. Entire denominations, flourishing denominations, exist because somebody took a scripture or two out of context. People read something from scripture and put a meaning on it that was never intended. When Satan tried to do that, Jesus used his superior knowledge of the meaning, not just the words, of the Bible to win the day. Why do you think we spend so much time going in depth into what God is really saying to us in Scripture? You must be prepared to fight the devil. You must be prepared to fight his underlings, the ones he's going to send against you. And the way you do that is know your Bible. You must find a way. 
If you aren't growing in your knowledge of God's Word, you are in danger. And I mean that. The forces of evil are going to try and capitalize on your ignorance just to ship you off to hell, at least to stop you from saving others. I'm not insulting anyone. You could be the most brilliant scientist, successful businessman, genius mathematician, or whatever. But that isn't going to save you. Don't be fooled into thinking that your high level of knowledge equips you for battles with the principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. Your only hope is to stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6, 14 and 15. Paul is saying the way that you survive the attacks of the devil is with God's word. Shame on you if your Bible is collecting dust, and I mean that. You're doing yourself a disservice. You're doing your children a disservice. You're doing your loved ones a disservice if you don't understand God's word. You can't protect anyone against the devil if you're ignorant of God's word. Ephesians 6, 15 and 14 tells us to wrap about us the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Resist, fight back battle. It says that we're to wear on our feet the preparation that we receive from our knowledge of the gospel. On our feet... Historians tell us that the shoes that Roman infantry men wore, and Paul was very familiar with the Roman infantry soldier. They're the ones that were standing guard over him. That's a, one of the things you can say about being imprisoned is it's very boring. And so Paul must have noticed these soldiers and what they're wearing. And he noticed that they had shoes on that had these little nails or spikes attached to them. What do you think those were for? Well, when a Roman foot soldier, that's what an infantryman is, when a Roman foot soldier is being attacked, they would dig those nails that were attached to their feet into the ground so that they could not be pushed off their position. They were digging their feet in. They had their feet shod with nails and spikes so they could dig in and not be moved. And have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul says, use the preparation of the gospel just like those Roman shoes and you're going to be able to withstand the blows of the evil one and not be driven from your stance. You will not be able to be driven from your stance if you're not ignorant. Use those nails and spikes of the preparation of the gospel to make sure no one pushes you off of your stance. They're going to try. Believe me, they're going to try. 
dig your feet in with the truth of the gospel, and you will always be able to absorb more effectively the assault of the enemy. In each one of the temptations that Jesus suffered of the devil, he beat it back with the truth, the truth. Jesus wanted you to know that. So he told the story to whomever was preparing the gospel. Tell them about this. Tell them that when the devil attacked me, I attacked him back. I protected myself with the word. That's a very important, that's a very mighty reason for having that story in the gospel, don't you think? Now, this story is full of truth. I hesitate to stop, but I have to move on. I don't want to stop what we're talking about. We have to continue to move. Maybe we can learn a couple of other things. Let's at least go over one more. This is important. We sort of alluded to it earlier. Some say to fully understand the temptation of Jesus, one must relate it directly to the baptism of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the gospel writers chronologically place these two events in Jesus's life back to back. Although Luke puts the genealogy of Jesus in between the baptism and the temptation. He meant, like Matthew and Mark, to relate the two as two parts of one experience. The two events from the life of Jesus are connected, the baptism and the temptation. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 3 actually ends with the baptism, and chapter 4 starts with, with the temptation. Remember, chapter and verse did not exist when Matthew first wrote it. That was added in medieval times, and I think it was a very important and useful addition. But still, it did not exist in Matthew's time. One story flowed to the other. The story of the baptism flowed into the story of the temptation. You and I, maybe, maybe when we're reading the Bible, we close the book at the end of each chapter and then pick up the book the next day. Well, if you did that with chapter 3 of Matthew and chapter 4 of Matthew, then you may have missed the point. Those two stories are connected. Mark, when he's telling the story, made it clear that this is important that one is connected to the other because he actually used the word immediately. What, what He used the equivalent, the Greek equivalent of immediately. Between the two parts, meaning one event followed the other. Let me explain by reading. Mark 1, 9, I'll start with. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. It's actually the, almost the same word as straightway in verse 10. And immediately and straightway, right away, the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. It's important to know that immediately 
immediately, straight away following the baptism, Jesus was sent into the desert to be tempted the entire time. It says he was tempted the entire 40 days. We only have a small snapshot of what was going on. But he was tempted the entire time. The moment he entered into the wilderness, he was tempted the entire 40 days. Both parts, the baptism and the temptation, relate to the mission of Jesus and the means by which he was going to achieve that mission. Paris Reedhead says something that changed my mind about the baptism. Baptism is about dying to something. When you and I go be baptized, we're dying to the way the world is. We're dying to the old self. We come up out of the water to newness of life. Well, what did Jesus have to die to? He didn't have sin. Jesus, in his baptism, died to his own authority as the Son of God. You see, Satan wouldn't have dared to do to Jesus before the baptism what he did after. For purposes of going to the cross, Jesus died to his divinity. From that point forward, Jesus would say, I'm not doing this of my own will. Someone else is telling me to do it. Usually it's the Father or the Spirit. He's doing what the Father tells him to do. It As the divine Son of God, he wouldn't have to do that. If he was still retained his authority as God, no one would have to tell him to do anything. When Jesus was baptized, he died to the authority given to him before the worlds began. He was still divine, but he gave up his claim to it. He died to his claim to it. Why do you think it failed? I don't know if we've covered it yet. Why do you think when Satan tempted Jesus to use his power as the Son of God to change the bread, the rock into bread, it failed? Because Jesus renounced that authority to take care of himself as the divine authority. The temptation and the baptism are inextricably connected. The baptism defined Jesus' mission as the suffering servant. When he was baptized, he gave up all rights to glide through life as the king of it all. He had to become the suffering servant at the baptism. And then the temptation was presenting to Jesus the cost of the the giving up of his authority. Satan immediately took advantage of the fact that Jesus was going to be the suffering servant. The temptation was meant to test the willingness of Jesus to be obedient to his purpose as the suffering servant, what he was called to do. You have to read deeply into these things. There's so much meaning in there. Listen to me. Jesus was not born with a complete knowledge of his role. 
Did you know that? We are told in the gospel of a time when Jesus was a boy. When he was a boy, Mary and Joseph lost sight of him after a trip to Jerusalem. They did not live in Jerusalem. They lived outside of Jerusalem. They had traveled into Jerusalem for a festival. Joseph, as a male Israelite, had to go to Jerusalem for the festivals. Well, one time they did that, and on their return trip, they realized Jesus wasn't with them. As soon as they discovered he was missing, they went searching for him, and they finally found him. After three days, they found him. Well, what was he doing? And it came to pass after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors. That just means the teachers and the rabbis, both both hearing them and asking them questions. Jesus was asking questions. He was trying to figure out what he was to do. Jesus was trying to find out. Up to that point, it was leading to the baptism. Up to that point in his life, it was being led to that baptism experience. He was discovering what it is he was to do and who he was. But it's clear that he had to gradually learn his true calling. Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased, the word means advance, progress. Jesus advanced, Jesus progressed in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. If he was born with complete knowledge, Luke 2.52 is a lie. I'll say it again. Jesus was human. The Bible wants you to know he was human. He had to be. You cannot take his humanity away from him. He was both man and God. Don't ask me to tell you how because I don't know. It had to be that way according to the law of the kinsman redeemer. No time to get into that. But he had to learn, just like you and I, what he was destined for so that the choice could be clearly made. He had to choose to love what God sent him to do. Therefore, he had to know what that was. At his baptism, Jesus, through the words from heaven and from the words of John the Baptist, finally realized it all came together, his destiny. And then immediately... He was led into the wilderness. By the way, by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're told in Luke 4.1. Being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. People don't know that. People think that Satan lured him into the wilderness. He didn't. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Why? God was showing his confidence in Jesus. You don't think that God knew Satan was out there lying in wait for Jesus? You don't think God knew what Jesus was heading into? Of course he did. And it didn't concern him. I think that's beautiful. Remember at the baptism, God spoke from heaven and said this was the one he was pleased with. This was his son. He stated that, and now the world, the devil, and even Jesus were about to find out why. 
the metal of Jesus was going to be tested. God's Spirit led Jesus into that wilderness to show that Jesus, God was showing that Jesus had what it took to fulfill his mission as the suffering servant. And Satan was going to say, oh yeah, we're going to find out about that, aren't we? By the way, God didn't need to be convinced. You and I do, and Satan did. Otherwise, this story would have never been in the gospel. If God had to see what Jesus was made of, that's a personal matter between the Father and the Son. We would have not been told that. Instead, we were told. So that we can see, first of all, that Jesus had what it took, and second of all, that God knew that Jesus had what it took. God was showing you the confidence in his own plan. God was showing that he was not afraid of the human condition. That's why he gave it to Jesus. He wasn't afraid of the human condition at all. You got all that? Good. Because now we know that. We know what God's intention was. Let's find out what Satan's intention was. And to be honest, they're related. Satan tempted Jesus not to get him to abandon the concept of Messiahship. That would be too obvious. But rather, to divert him from his proper Messiahship. When Satan penetrates the walls of the church, I'm going to say this again, he's not going to go in there playing ACDC and expecting you to bow down to pornography. He's not going to do that. None of that's going to happen. He's going to come in there as an angel of light. He's just going to want you to divert ever so subtly because it makes more sense. Satan was not going to tell Jesus, forget the Messiah stuff, forget it. That's not what he said. He just wanted to just divert a little bit. You have a mission too. God has a plan for you too. Just like Jesus was sent to become Messiah, God sent you here to be something. For the kingdom. That's the meaning and purpose of life. Don't let anyone tell you any differently. We were born, all of us, were born to be instruments in God's hands. His children and his enemies are all God's instruments. Who you are and what you have came straight from God. Satan's attack in the wilderness was an all-out effort to get Jesus to bypass his role as the suffering Messiah. Oh yeah? Baptism says you're going to be the suffering Messiah? We'll see about that. Satan says. How is he going to do it? Well, you see, the Jews, no doubt through centuries of Satan's manipulation of the truth, were expecting a Messiah, of course, but a false Messiah. A Messiah who would be a great military ruler, one who would crush and punish Israel's oppressors, the oppressors 
of the nation of Israel. And, and they had changed over the many centuries. By the time of Jesus, it was the Romans. When Jesus came, they were expecting a Messiah, a military ruler who would crush the Romans. They were looking for a political Messiah. For thousands of years, the nation of Israel had been under the boot of one ruthless nation after another, each of which tried time and again to wipe them off the face of the map. And it's still happening, by the way. The Jews thought it was about them. They thought the Messiah was for them, to glorify them, to free them. Who cares what happens to the rest of the world? We want the Messiah to crush our enemies for us. They were looking for the Messiah who would release them, his people, God's people, from the mistreatment of their enemies. But the creator truth, the truth that's in God's word, the truth that really exists there is that Jesus's role as the suffering Messiah would release all of God's people from the, the oppression of the biggest enemy of all, Satan. That's the true Messiah. And Satan knew it. Of course he knew it. And his temptations were aimed at getting Jesus off that real mission and onto the illusion of the military or political Messiah, the one that would make Jesus famous. One that would make Jesus the most opulent king on earth. The Jews wanted that kind of Messiah. And Satan wanted Jesus to want it too. Once the focus of your life turns toward heaven, Satan is going to try to trick you into refocusing inward. He's going to want to stop you from serving God and go back to being concerned about yourself. You want to know the answer to all the evil in the world itself. It's our most difficult battle in this life is to turn our focus outward. And by the way, the, the devil knew that God doesn't have a backup plan. If he could get Jesus to step outside of God's will for him, he knew there'd be no hope. There'd be no hope for mankind. The concept of the military or political messiah was an earthbound vision. It was flesh and blood. It was temporary. And its effectiveness, by the way, would only apply to the Jew. It would have given the Jews what they wanted, but done nothing for the world. In complete contrast was the truth. God's plan was spiritual and therefore permanent, and above all, it was to apply to all. Well, how was Satan going to accomplish the distraction of Jesus from his true messiahship? How was Satan going to get Jesus to be this political messiah that the Jews were expecting? And the devil 
taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will it, I give it. Satan tried to convince Jesus to grab the prize now. Listen. This is one of the most important lessons we could ever learn from our walk with God. You see, those kingdoms were going to be Jesus's anyway. Every single kingdom that Satan showed him was eventually going to be his anyhow. The Bible makes that clear. Satan and Jesus knew that. But Satan tried to convince Jesus to kind of skip over all that tough stuff, skip over the suffering, skip over the anguish, the pain, the death, all the hard work and unpleasantness. He even made Jesus believe that's what God would want. God doesn't want you to go through all the pain and suffering. He wants to send his angels to make sure you don't dash your foot against the stone. As parents, we don't want to give our kids chores. They're so unpleasant. We don't want our kids to, to, to have to work for their college education. That's just painful. Skip all of that stuff. Do it the easy way. Get somebody else to do it. Satan tried to get Jesus to do it the easy way. He told Jesus, the eventual ruler of all things, just go grab it all now. Why wait? Why work for it when I'm willing to give it to you? Just take it by whatever other means is available. Everything, the real way is too unpleasant. Suffering servant, suffering Messiah, forget it. That's his tactic. Ever since the garden, the father of lies has been trying to get us to go around God's plan. God's as interested in your peace and happiness as you are. You may not believe that, but he is. You just got to do it his way. Satan doesn't usually try to convince you that God's plans are bad for you. He just wants you to try the easy way. God's such a killjoy. All that suffering and sacrifice and selflessness, he must not love you. That's what he tried to tell Eve. God's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. He just doesn't want you to be to realize that, that you could be as powerful as he is. Look out for number one, and you'll be a better person for it. It's what the world's telling you. Who do you think gave the world that idea? Don't believe it. God knows best. Satan knows that God knows best. The devil wants you, just like he wanted Jesus, to achieve your destiny, your way. 
You don't have a destiny outside of God. Any destiny you're bound for was given to you by God. And do it God's way and you'll achieve that destiny. You'll achieve the great things for Him. How do I know they're going to be great? Because God gave it to you. Now, I'm not saying you're going to pastor the Metropolitan Tabernacle full of 3,000 people. You're not going to do what D.L. Moody did, maybe, maybe not. Save hundreds of thousands of people through his ministry. Doesn't mean you're going to be the most gifted pastor in the world. It doesn't mean you're going to run a world-famous orphanage or a homeless shelter. Not necessarily. Listen to me, John Tomasi. The world may hardly notice your contribution to the kingdom, but God sees it, and he sees it all. And isn't that really what you want? I mean, you say you love him. I'm talking to all of us now. We say that we love him. We're sitting here listening to this nasally Midwestern accent for an hour and 17 minutes. It's not him that we're listening to. We're listening to God's word. I must love him. You must love him. We want to put a smile on his face, don't we? Don't we want to hear him tell us, well done when it's all wrapped up, don't we? Don't we want to be called good and faithful servant? It will happen if you do it his way. I hate to, but we have to stop sometime. There's so much in this story, it's just impossible to cover it. We'll come back to it another time, and I know I tell you that all the time, and we don't. We will. Jesus wanted you to know what he went through the desert. He retold his story to someone and insisted that it be a part of the record of his life. Nothing in God's word is there by accident. Jesus wants you to know that Satan is going to try and spoil God's plans for your life. He's going to try every possible tactic in order to get you to stop living for God and start living for yourself. He doesn't care. Satan doesn't care if you serve him. You stupid Satan worshipers, you're fools. He doesn't care about that. He just wants you to stop living for God and start living for yourself. Jesus wants you to know, don't be afraid. You have what it takes to beat that attack. You have God's word. That's the key to this story. You have the word of God to protect you. It's front and center. It's all truth and it's all powerful. I'm calling on us all today to take this opportunity to rededicate ourselves to learning Holy Scripture as completely as we can. Learn His Word so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. 
Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.